Welcome back to the Yet Worth podcast, and thanks for joining us for our last episode of our series that breaks down the four parts of our ebook, Planting the Seed, 20 Ways to Preserve Your Yet Worth, which you can find at yetworth.com slash ebook. Uh, we usually introduce ourselves. I'm Emma, and this is my co-host, Max. Hey, everybody. Well, let's move on to long-term care insurance. Long-term care insurance is becoming more commonly known due to its essential role in our aging population. Here's a stat for you. An estimated 50 million people will be 65 and older by 2020. So that's already happened. And almost 50% of them are expected to use formal paid long-term care services and support. This is from the Society of Actuaries. They did a report in 2016. So, it's stuff that people are using, and that's why uh, the the pricing has been uh, such a hot topic. But it's usually purchased between age 50 and 60. The benefit eligibility is directly tied to the benefit reimbursement. Um, and the federal standard for LTC eligibility is a loss of two or more ADLs. This means activities of daily living, such as eating, bathing, toileting, etc., um, or severe cognitive impairment. So LTC benefits can reimburse LTC costs, such as adult daycare, home care, assisted living, or nursing facility care. It's not income replacement. It's LTCSS, long-term care services and support reimbursement. So why would someone want long-term care insurance? Um, well, the, this is obvious. The cost of care is extremely expensive. Um, but what is LTC insurance hedging against? So long-term care insurance is really there, again, for, for well, a variety of care needs, right? Care needs happen during your working years. I don't want to discount that fact because, you know, I think it's something like 40% of uh, care needs are for people under the age of 65, which is kind of a wild number. I think we overlook that a lot in this industry. So it's important. It's super important, but it's not designed to replace income. It's designed to replace assets. And so what you're using is um, a system typically that's going to reimburse, like you were saying, for your care needs. Your care needs are going to be really expensive. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast these days. It costs, you know, at minimum 30 bucks an hour these days for good home care. And if you price that out at eight hours a day, that's gonna be roughly six grand a month. And so that six grand a month is going to be, um, you know, it could be years. If you have a dementia scenario, you're probably gonna use it more than that eight hours a day. So let's call it 10, uh, 10,000 a month. And you're gonna be, you know, in a scenario where you've got um, potentially another five, eight, I think I just learned today, actually, that the average Alzheimer's and dementia claim is about nine years. So oh, you've got an insane amount of time on the hook where you're paying 10 grand a month. That's assuming it stays the same. Um, but you also have these market forces, like you mentioned, 50 million people turned age 65 by 2020. Um, and, and so you've got you've got a lot of people who are going to be putting stress on that system uh which you know just following simple supply and demand curves is going to result in a huge price increase while everybody needs this stuff at the same time so we're almost there i mean this is something i've been talking about since i entered the business 13 years ago was you know in 
2010, starting in 2010, the New York Times ran a piece January 1st saying, as of today, there will be 10,000 baby boomers turning age 65 every single day for the next God knows how long. And so that's one of those things where, you know, now we're, uh, that was 2010, so we're 12 years down the road. Now they're turning age 72 at 10, the tune of 10,000 a day. Obviously, some people die. Um, but that's going to be one of those things that we just continue to keep an eye on as this, they call it the silver tsunami, starts to crest. <laughs> Um, and and starts to sweep through the country. I mean, there's going to be a huge stress on on the system and create massive price increases as people are clamoring for the care needs that they all need at the same time. So it's going to be trouble. You also have other market forces like you know um, just minimum wage minimum wage rising. Of course, we we got to do something about that in this country. There's no doubt there. Um, there's also issues about um, unionization potentially in certain states and things like that for for caregivers uh, who don't currently have unions or any any way to organize. Not so sure about that, but it's another force implication potentially. So cost is going to be way more expensive down the road. The ten thousand dollar figure that's today. I mean, residential care is already at ten thousand. Uh, nursing care is already at twelve. So um, and those are average statistics, right? So you're looking at People who are planning for this stuff are usually have above average wealth. So think about paying 15 to 20 this year. Um, and I want to just plug really quickly, just Google Genworth cost of care and oh, yeah. you'll see they do a study every year on how expensive um, long term care costs are by you know, nationally, and then they dial it in by state, by region, by city. So it's monthly, annually. You can see how much it's going to be and it's quite impressive it's super important it's super important to understand to plan for it and all that but it's not really one of those things that's going to affect most people most claimants most disability scenarios in their working years still i mean you're talking about the, the top needs for claim are musculoskeletal in nature um cancer uh, mental nervous disorders and heart disease now you can make a case for musculoskeletal or for heart disease that results in a stroke. But generally speaking, I mean, you're not going to see it for, um, you know, for people in their working years where there's dementia, Alzheimer's, that those are the, the big ones, I think. And then, you know, obviously ADLs is, is activities of daily living is a big one. And the way I learned about these is you tend to lose your activities of daily living in the reverse order that you learn them. So if you think about, you know, I, I have three kids right now, one, three, and five are their ages currently, and, and we're teaching all three of them their ADLs as they co go along, right? Their activities of daily living, how to eat by yourself, how to dress by yourself, how to bathe by yourself. And currently I've got one that can bathe by himself. He can do all the dressing by himself. So he's finally on that level where he's independent living. Um, <laughs> but the other two still need a lot of help with the bathing, the dressing, the eating, everything. So. It's one of those things where, you know, you, you end up losing the bathing and dressing first. And that doesn't mean like you just flat out lose the ability to bathe and dress. I, I want to be clear that the bar is not super high with that, right? For these claim scenarios, if you're 80 plus, you have type 2 diabetes and, you know, you need help getting your compression socks on. That's need for dressing. You can be able to do the whole, all of it by yourself, but that's that you check the dressing. Um, and then same thing with bathing. If you need, if you lose stability on one foot getting in and out of the tub, that's going to be your assistance with bathing. So, you know, it's not like you need to be, you know, you need to be down to toddler or, or, or baby status with all this stuff. You, you just need to 
um, have those clear those bars. And then the reimbursement kicks in where you're paying out the, for those services. And then, you know, the policy is usually coordinated with a, a third party care coordinator that can kind of help you uh, manage the, the processing with the carrier. And then you get that check back uh, that in, you know, up to the maximum uh, for your benefits. So it's really important to understand how that works because that's how the vast majority of LTC policies work. There are some with an indemnity uh, type of benefit. So it pays on an indemnity basis, which is just a fancy term for um, a defined benefit amount. So instead of a reimbursement, it's a defined 10,000 a month or something like that. And you just get a check. And if you don't spend the full 10,000, you keep it in your bank account. It stays with you. It doesn't matter. You don't owe the carrier back anything. It just pays 10,000. Um, those, they're not super common, but there are some, some pretty big carriers that do have that indemnity basis. But again, pretty narrow in scope. You have to lose the ability to do two activities of daily living or have a severe cognitive impairment. Uh, so it doesn't cover the cancer, the mental nervous disorder, most heart disease claims, even some musculoskeletal issues. You know, if you're a surgeon, oh my God, carpal tunnel will knock you out. That counts. Um, but obviously you're not going to need help with ADLs or uh, the cognitive impairment in that situation. Uh, so that's just something to understand that, you know, the, the benefits pay more narrowly in scope due to the, the more um, dialed in, uh, you know, uh, type of benefit eligibility requirements. Whereas with disability insurance, you're talking about, you know, typically your, your ability to uh, do your job, the substantial material duties of your regular occupation and not working elsewhere. That's the basic definition for most carriers. Now we've saved the best for last, well, second to last. We're moving on to individual disability insurance. DI is income replacement. This is the answer here. Um, private individually owned disability insurance is the closest thing you're gonna get to an income source substitute. And it's meant to replace up to 65% of income on a tax-free basis. And it typically costs around 2% of your annual salary. Plans are designed to pay on a partial or total disability basis, and benefit eligibility depends on the insured's ability to perform the substantial and material duties of their occupation. So this is directly tied to your income. There is financial, occupational, and medical underwriting involved, and DI policies are customizable based on budgets and financial needs and some are even offered on a simplified underwriting basis. Now, I know I've been asking the question of who could benefit from this product or in which circumstances would an advisor recommend this product, but while you can lay out who's the ideal candidate, I feel like the question is more like who wouldn't benefit or qualify for DI? Um, so that's my question. Yeah, it, it kind of goes down to, you know, that magical uh, underwriting statement you, you, you made there uh, between financial, occupational and medical. Those are really the, the three pronged approach for underwriters. They need to understand how financially you would be able to qualify for this. And that means, do you have enough income? Number one, like, is it earned income is really kind of the main deal there. So if you're you know, if you're making 300,000 a year, but like, you know, 75% of that is going to be passive income, or they call it unearned income, then you are not going to need DI because you're going to be doing pretty good 
even if you become disabled and can't do your job anymore. You're still going to have 75% income replacement, and that's enough, uh, according to underwriters. You can argue that it's not enough. You need 100. But um, we have specialty carriers for that, if that is a pressing need. Um, but the uh, the scenario there is, you know, you need to be able to to financially qualify, and, and that's really what they mean. It's not too much unearned income, not too much passive income, and that you have enough income to start. And usually, that that bottom line that they need is about thirty thousand, thirty six thousand in some states, California. <clears throat> but they do need to see that basic income, three thousand a month, typically, um, pre tax. And then occupationally, I mean, they, they can't underwrite every occupation group. I mean, I joked about hot air ballooning earlier, but you're probably not going to see too many hot air balloon pilots on a DI application. It's just not going to be, you know, the, the traditional marketplace, the domestic marketplace. Um, they're not going to be interested in, in occupations like that. There are many others, entertainers, musicians, pilots. I mean, really any type of risk class that anybody can associate with being a little bit more dangerous. Um, one that isn't, though, that we're starting to really lose favor with is chiropractors. Apparently, they just go out on claim all the time. So um, there's that aspect as well. Uh, you know, there's just a few pockets like that where you're like, really? They don't cover mm -hmm. people like that? But um, but again, there's special markets for the specific occupation. So there's never, uh, you know, one one Lloyd's underwriter, one Lloyd's cover holder we, we've worked with for a very long time. Uh, Lloyd's of London being a specialty market, that non-domestic marketplace for these special risks. Um, they always say there's no such thing as bad risk. There's just bad premium. So <laughs> in other words, if anybody's willing to pay enough, they'll cover the risk. But it's not always going to be a good deal for the client in that scenario. So we're going to kind of jump into um, what is the option for all these people we just talked about in the next section. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean, Ideal candidates are people who rely on their incomes and have the income uh, to prove the financial underwriting. Right. Lots of business owners, um, those who are not covered by their employer's plans, although individual DI can be a good supplement um, to employer offered group DI. Oh, especially and, today where you see, you know, just entrepreneurship jumping off the charts these days. People want to have their own gig and they're going to lose their group policies when they when they finally cut the cord, so to speak, with their employers. And and they just need to understand that a supplemental DI plan now would be really smart if mm. you're ever thinking about starting your own business down the line. Yeah. I mean, those who don't qualify, we're going to talk about a little bit more. But is there anything else we want to say about individual DI I mean, yeah, we could yeah, talk absolutely. about it all day. <laughs> I know. I mean, the, the big elephant in the room, I didn't really get to hammer this point home, is there's medical underwriting, too. So you've right. got you've got uh, a certain level of risk that carriers are willing to accept in the marketplace. I literally just got a call, I think it was two weeks ago, you know, and it happens probably once every quarter. Somebody calls me saying, hey, I got this client who just got their consultant. They want DI. Uh, what can we do for them? They just got diagnosed with cancer. It's always the last thing they say in those mm. calls, and then, but they know, they know deep down, like mm -hmm. this is not a risk we can do. You should have had this conversation with them six months ago, and just get ahead of it. I mean, it's, it's really not that hard to at least introduce the topic, get it off your plate from a liability standpoint. If you're a fiduciary and you have a fiduciary obligation to be managing your client's risk portfolio and investment portfolio, remember those go hand in hand. If you're a holistic advisor. <laughs> Have these conversations. Don't be scared. It's really not that hard. 
Yeah, you don't call your PNC agent for homeowners insurance when your house is on fire. All right, well, let's move on to that last piece of the individual coverage puzzle, which I think is a completely underrated and um, not super commonly known coverage in the United States, at least, critical illness insurance. CI is designed to cover three main categories, cancer, cardiovascular, and other critical illness. It's a simple product. It pays a lump sum. It's a predetermined benefit to the insured upon proof of diagnosis of one of the critical illnesses covered by the policy. That's it. It's pretty pretty easy to understand. Um, so why is CI a good solution to look to when folks may not qualify for a more robust IDI policy? Yeah, it's really one of those things where if you can't qualify financially or occupationally, this is kind of the best we can do unless you're mm-hmm. willing to pay a little bit more in the special risk marketplace. But um, CI, it's super affordable. I mean, it, it's 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 a it's a very easy to understand. Like you said, it's a if then if X then Y type of benefit, parametric benefit, where all it takes is really a billing code from your from your uh, um, medical provider uh, that proves that you were uh, treated for a certain condition and boom, benefits paid. I mean, our, our dad, he was the first claimant I ever had. I, I was trying to sell him a hundred thousand dollar CI policy. He talked me down to 50,000. Um, and then he added, he had a uh, heart attack. And so that paid within, I think it was eight days. Um, took a couple of days for us to kind of get our stuff together and, and file. So, I mean, it was, an amazing sequence of events that just the cash showed up quickly um, and he was able to, in theory, he was able to take it easy for a little bit. He was back at work like in two weeks, but or less, but <laughs> the, um, you know, the, the point being like the CI benefits, they're really quick. They're really easy to understand. Um, there is still some underwriting medical underwriting involved. There's some family history uh, potentially that could um, change an outcome in the underwriting decision. But we want to make sure we're getting ahead of all that, doing our due diligence with some field underwriting and stuff like that. So um, we'll just, you know, I think it's a good, useful uh, benefit for people who have seen the effects of critical illnesses out in real life. Um, We all know somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer. We've all seen the GoFundMes out there. We've all, Mm -hmm. you know, bought plate of brownies for our friends, parents when we were kids and stuff and GoFundMe's weren't, didn't exist. I mean, this is stuff that even if, you know, it doesn't enter your psyche on a day-to-day basis. If you think about it hard enough, um, you start to see it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're obviously conditioned to, to have that, that tuning fork in place where we see it all the time. But um, if, you're, if you're just thinking about planning for yourself, you're not really in this field, um, I encourage you to just kind of keep your keep your tuners open for a little bit, like a week or something, and just kind of see what uh, what you see in your community um, and what you hear about people's uh, you know struggles and and where it all stems from. And I think a lot of the time you'll find is there's some sort of medical issue in the background that's sort of driving things and behaviors um, for people that that need help financially. Um, and actually, I mean that brings me to the whole origin story. Just briefly here on critical illness, first successful heart transplant in South Africa, um, Dr. Marius Bernard, and he um, was seeing that these patients were often frequent flyers and coming back 
with another issue down the road. And he said, what's the issue? Well, can't do everything that I needed. I needed to get back to work. I needed to do this. I needed to do that. And so he invented critical illness insurance. He basically wanted his patients to have the financial wherewithal to actually recover. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, that's all we're trying to do with people for disability insurance, critical illness insurance. I mean, we just want people to feel financially well enough that they can recover um, from their from their illness. The sooner you get back to work, the sooner you get back to your normal life without changing a darn thing, there's patterns and stuff that really kind of relay back to the disability. And I think people um, that we're starting to we're starting to open our eyes a little bit more to this kind of this concept of these patterns and things. And, and I think um, it's worth talking about in this forum too, where you've got, you got one life. And if you're going to, you know, if you're going to not have the resources and not be able to self-insure, you want to make sure you're at least protecting yourself in the, in the event that, you know, something does happen. And so that that's really the, the exclamation point, I think, to this discussion is, it's easy enough to go out there and get the information and meet the people you need to meet in order to get the coverage. And if you don't know who to talk to, reach out to us. Uh, it's something you should be talking about, thinking about right now, um, not just for your sake, but if you have a family, uh, spouse, anything like that, um, make sure you're, you're, you're covering yourself and covering them. Right. We all know somebody who has had a cancer diagnosis. It's too obvious to ignore. And this kind of coverage, if you qualify, there's just medical underwriting, no occupational or no financial. Um, it's It can be pretty affordable. So um, it's a nice consolation prize if you do get a diagnosis. There you have it. A dive into income replacement options on an individual coverage level. That concludes our podcast series running through the ebook Planting the Seed 20 Ways to Preserve Your Yet Worth, which you can find at yetworth.com slash ebook. Like Max said, feel free to contact us if you have any questions about this coverage, if you have any feedback on the ebook, um, you can email us at team at yetworth.com. And stay tuned for more content on the wonderful topic of preserving your yet worth.